Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 12th episode of 2021. As I've mentioned over the past few weeks, there's a lot of activity underway on the Hill and at the White House on a very significant infrastructure package. The Fiber Broadband Association continues to be very active in meeting with numerous congressional offices in an effort to gain bipartisan support for a nationwide deployment of symmetric gigabit broadband. Unfortunately, we do have some detractors. It appears that former FCC Commissioner Michael O'Reilly has been testifying over the past week at congressional hearings saying that 25.3 is good enough. And if we raise the bar, more homes will be classified as unserved or underserved. Well, guess what, Mr. O'Reilly? Rural communities that are relegated to 25.3 don't need anyone to tell them they're underserved. You know, all Americans deserve to have gigabit symmetric services. And those communities without fiber will be left behind on the wrong side of the digital divide. The fiber broadband is not gonna let this happen. And we are confident that we will gain bipartisan support with $80 billion for gigabit broadband in the upcoming infrastructure package. So speaking of investment, that brings us to today's fiber breakfast session we'll be um, discussing the rural broadband opportunity, a Wall Street perspective. Before I introduce our guests, I'd like to introduce Tris Ehlers from our team, who will walk us through some housekeeping items. Thank you, Gary, and good morning to everyone who's joined us today. I'm going to quickly go over a few logistical items. If, all, if everyone attending could keep in mind that all participants are in listen-only mode, to ask a question, just type it into the question box located within your control panel toward the right side of your screen. Uh, Gary will host a Q&A session with our panelists toward the end. This presentation is being recorded and will be available to members only on FBA's website within 24 hours. You can find the recording in the events tab under the Fiber for Breakfast drop-down option. At the conclusion of the presentation, you'll be prompted to complete a very brief feedback survey. We do pay attention to these and we appreciate your input. I'll now pass it back to Gary to introduce our panelists and get us started. Thank you, Trish. And again, good morning and welcome everybody. I'm Gary Bolton, the President and CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association. And I'm very excited about today's episode of Fiber for Breakfast as we have equity analyst icon, George Snodder with us today to discuss the rural broadband opportunity, a Wall Street perspective. George Snodder is a Managing Director and Equity Research Analyst for Jefferies, covering the communications infrastructure sector. George has 25 years of equity research experience exclusively in the communications infrastructure sector. He is rated one of the top 100 Wall Street analysts for stock picking performance and has been awarded the Star Mine Award as the number one stock picker in the communications equipment sector, among numerous other Wall Street analyst awards and recognitions. George has a BS and a master's in finance from the University of Wisconsin, and he currently lives in the Bay Area with his wife and two children. Welcome, George. And given 
that you follow our sector very closely. I'm really anxious to hear the Wall Street perspective on investment for rural broadband. For our audience, you know, please type in the questions as you go and for Q&A at the conclusion of the presentation. So with that, over to you, George. Hi, thanks a lot, Gary. I appreciate the introduction. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you a, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of plain English version of what I do is uh, I'm an advisor to investors. And um, so uh, I'm one of the guys that makes buy, sell, and hold recommendations on stocks. Uh, our clients are institutional investors, uh, folks in places like uh, Newberger Berman or Fidelity or Janus, Putnam, you know, those types of places, plus plus a, a hedge fund community as well. And so, um, so I'm an advisor, a consultant, if you will. And as Gary said, I've been following the space for 25 years. Um, Trish, if you turn the slide, I'll, I'll show the menu. Um, this is a uh, this is an eye chart. I realized it. It's a little hard to see, but um, every uh, analyst in my position in every sector has uh, has a quote unquote menu. So this is a collection of stocks that I, I research actively. And uh, you know, as Gary said, I've been doing this for 25 years. And uh, you know, this is uh, this is a really dynamic and interesting sector. And you know, broadband access infrastructure companies are kind of uh, near and dear to my heart. They're some of the, the first stocks that I picked up, you know, years and years ago. Um, and today, you know, we're a big fan of some of the rural broadband kind of plays in our research group. Um, in fact, we think it's a tremendous theme for investors in our research group. And um, so the stocks that we like on, around that theme are Adtran, Calix, and Cambium. We have buy ratings on all three of those companies. And uh, we've been really advocating for folks to to get involved in those names. Yeah, so if I dig into the rural broadband theme, um, you know, Gary, you know, we were talking the other day and, you know, I think a lot of folks in the investment community, you know, look, the reality is they live in urban areas, they live in, 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 in the suburbs, you know, places where broadband services are very, very good. And, you know, I think there's this view among investors that, you know, everyone has broadband and it's good. And the reality is, is that that's not the case. There is a digital divide issue in this country and, and even internationally and um, you know it's funny because you, you talk to investors and everybody has an anecdote about someone they know that lives in a rural area whose broadband is poor but you know when you don't live in the middle of it you kind of forget about it and um, so this unserved underserved you know segment of the marketplace I think is something that's um, really ripe for capital investment and that's a very good you know picture for these uh, these stocks that we like so, uh, you know, this chart is a is a bit of an eye chart also. I'll let you look at it. But this is the FCC data uh, that was published uh, in December. And uh, it's one year lagged, of course. It's uh, effectively census data for residential broadband connections. Uh, you know, you realize here that the FCC definition is very generous, 200 kilobits in at least one direction. But, um, you know, what's interesting to me about this is that, uh, you know, they say there's 105 million homes in the U.S. as of December 2019 that are served uh, with broadband, you know, by that, you know, 200 kilobits definition. When we look at SNL Kagan data, and that's the, uh, the graphic at the bottom, uh, you know, SNL Kagan tracks occupied households in the U.S. And, you know, it's off by a year in terms of the, the, uh, the, the dates here. But. 128 million homes, all right, so occupied. So you know, we think there's as many as 23 million homes that are just flat unserved, at least 23 million homes that are flat unserved. And you know, obviously you look at that ADSL component, 17.5 million lines, uh, December 2019, you know, a very large portion or significant portion of those lines certainly are gonna be 
you know, inferior, right? Um, only three megs, five megs, you know, upstream in, in a lot of cases. Um, so not really quality broadband. So, you know, I'm licking my finger and holding it up in the air, but it feels like there's at least 30 or 35 million homes that are unserved or underserved uh, in the U.S. And when you look at the rate of broadband deployment, you know, this is semi-annual data. You go back and look, um, you know, U.S., again, by this data is adding about 3 million new households per year. So, um, when you add it up, it feels like there's a runway of you know 10, 12 years of investment at current pace um, in rural broadband, and uh, that's something that I think is is pretty interesting for these companies. Um, you know, I think uh, Gary is is near and dear to all these different items here. Um, you know, we're of the viewpoint that uh, the demand for this will be lasting. One of the fears that investors have is that you know there's this initial surge in demand. Uh, the operators are going to meet those surges in demand. Equipment vendors are going to get the benefit for a period of time, and then you're going to see the demand, you know, more or less go away or relax. And uh, uh, that's a view I don't subscribe to. I, I think Gary doesn't either. But the, the basic idea is that you know, COVID really sh shines a highlight on you know how critical broadband services are. Rural communities really know that you know broadband availability is a necessary condition for economic development now. And so the you know the 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 Pandora's box has been opened, so to speak, you know, and it can't be closed. And, you know, the demand for broadband, I think, is uh, is going to continue to accelerate even in these rural areas. Um, by the way, we've got a, a little uh, kind of bullet in here about, you know, population shift. Um, really interesting analysis that our firm did on population shift in the U.S. Um, this was published in uh, January this year. Um, the punchline is that there's a lot of population shift from urban centers into rural areas. I think people kind of get that. But uh, the data was super interesting. It's a U.S. Postal Service data. Uh, specifically, we looked at mail forwarding requests. So it turns out there's about 2.5 million mail forwarding requests every month, about uh, 30 million moves per year. Um, and uh, if you look at the urban zip codes out of that you know, data set, this is a Q4 data, uh, but if you look at urban zip codes, the move out requests were up 17% year on year. The move in requests were up 7% year on year. So on a net basis, people are departing urban centers. And, and these are big numbers, right? And, uh, and the interesting thing is that we found that they're not going to the suburbs, right? They're going to the, our guys call this the exurbs or rural areas. Um, so in exurbs and rural areas, move-in requests were up 4% year-on-year, move-out requests were down 2.6% year-on-year. So you're seeing this COVID-induced shift towards, uh, towards home ownership, and you're seeing a COVID-induced shift of people moving to places, you know, that are not urban centers, away from urban centers, and places that are, by and large, uh, lower cost. So obviously, you know, when we think about that population shift as, as being, you know, permanent, not temporary, yeah, that's another kind of tailwind to this rural broadband market. Rural funding, uh, you know, I think people kind of realize this, you know, current levels are around $4 billion a year. That's for the price cap and rate of return operators. We know there's another little chunk for the competitive carriers as well, but um, that's your baseline, right? And we think about um, RDOF phase one, of course, coming in. I think folks on this call will be very familiar with RDOF. Phase two, I'm quite interested in, you know, it's probably, uh, you know, a couple years away in terms of when you might see an auction, but that's another 11 billion, you know, funding over 10 years. Uh, obviously, the COVID relief bill from December is another 7 billion. 
in a sort of hodgepodge of broadband programs. Um, you know, the thing, of, you know, and, and these are, these programs are on the rails. Um, you know, they're, they're law, they're legislated, and it's going to happen. Uh, the other one I should put in here also is the American Rescue Plan of 2021. Obviously, that was just passed into law, 1.9 trillion. You, you know, we know there's $350 billion in that plan allocated to states and local government organizations. Um, and we're really curious to watch how those dollars are going to get funneled into broadband investment. Um, when you break down the 350 billion, you know, 220 billion is going to states. Um, and uh, those are available in fiscal 21. The funds are open, quote unquote, until December of, 2000, December of 2024. Um, but the mandate is that those funds are for assistance to lower income households, nonprofits, small businesses, uh, companies and industries that are especially hard hit economically, water and sewer projects, and, you know, wait for it, broadband, right? So um, there's another $120 billion for local governments. Um, you know, again, same stipulations available to that same, you know, cadre of potential projects, households, nonprofits, small businesses, economically challenged industries, water, sewer, broadband. Um, so when you kind of go through it, I think the trickle down to broadband can be really significant. And it's an open question on, you know, how many dollars are really going to be there. But uh, it's potentially, you know, a significant bump relative to the kinds of funding rates, you know, we're seeing already in, in, in rural environments. Um, the other interesting thing about that local component in the American Rescue Plan of 2021 is of, of the $120 billion, uh, $18 billion is for towns of less than 50,000 people uh, and or counties of less than uh, 200,000 people, right? So we have more funding going into rural areas. Again, it's not a given, it goes to broadband, but um, that can be you know, potentially very interesting. Yeah, this is a chart we originally put up. Uh, again, I realize this is an eye chart. <clears throat> you can look at it, but... Um, you know, th there's lots more opportunity for more funding that we're pretty excited about. And um, if you go back to the first few items on the top of this chart, you know, the HEROES Act last year in, in May, uh, you know, it failed, right? It included $4 billion for rural broadband. It was dead on arrival in the Senate. Uh, this is before the, you know, the, the, the Senate moved to, uh, I guess, Democratic control, of course, pre-election. Uh, but the Moving Forward Act <clears throat> had $100 billion in it, again, <clears throat> dead on arrival in the Senate. The HEROES Act in version two in October had $61 billion in it, again, dead on arrival in the Senate. So we know the Dems have these intentions that are very significant in terms of, you know, big dollar values being allocated to rural broadband. <clears throat> um, you know, again, we got a chunk in the, in the COVID-19 Relief Act. We've got this American Rescue Plan. We'll see what trickles through from broadband. And now we've got this $94 billion, you know, accessible, affordable internet for internet uh, for all act. And obviously that's still, uh, you know, making its way through the machinations of, of, of Congress. But um, to me, you know, there's some significant new funding coming into the space that can get spent on broadband and really drive, you know, this theme uh, going forward. Um, you know, I've got a couple other bullet points here in terms of the items that are sort of interesting to us, you know, Windstream and Frontier historically have been significant um, customers for guys like Calix and Adtran and uh, and less so Cambium. But, um, you know, Windstream's exiting a bankruptcy. They've, they're fixing their balance sheet. Uh, lots of, uh, you know, discussion coming out of Windstream strategically about, 
you know, really reinvesting in, in fiber to the prem and really investing in their residential broadband services. Frontier, uh, similar exiting, uh, you know, bankruptcy. They've wiped out $11 billion in debt, um, and they're pointing at 3 million hop, copper homes that they can invest, you know, fiber to the prem and, and do it in an attractive ROI. So we think that's a tailwind here also. Um, and then on competition, you know, it's funny, we've really come full circle in this industry. If I go back two or three years, you know, I felt like there was a real capital spending truce going on, you know, when it came to residential broadband across this industry. And uh, if you look at the telcos, you look at the cable operators, um, you know, and here we're talking about public companies, right? Larger public companies, telcos, these are the Verizons, AT&Ts, T-Mobiles, Charters, Comcast of the world. When you look at that collective of companies, and then, and then the other you know, slightly smaller public companies around them, you, you know, we, the cable guys have had a tremendous amount of success, right? Ten years of consecutive, uh, you know, significant broadband subscriber additions. We're talking about, you know, five to 10 percent annual growth in broadband subs. The telcos grew broadband, you know, through 2015. And then in 2016, they started losing broadband subs. And these are significant numbers, you know, down 2% in 2016, down one in 2017, flat in 2018, down 6% in 2019, down 11% in 2020. So, so you, you saw guys like CenturyLink and Windstream, I felt like they really pivoted their business plans, right? They went away from residential broadband, and they decided to really invest in enterprise. So CenturyLink bought level three, for example, that was a pivot. Uh, Windstream made some acquisitions that indicated a pivot away from residential broadband. And so so the environment was one where you know, the cable guys had kind of won, right? And they were serving DOCSIS 3.0, DOCSIS 3.1. They were advertising gigabit speeds in many cases. And these telcos just didn't have the balance sheets or the time to really invest in fiber to the prem in, in, in an aggressive and thoughtful way. And you know, their DSL installed bases were just just atrophying. So it was a real ugly environment. And in that environment, you saw the cable guys actually pull down their, their CapEx spending pretty significantly. CapEx came down 15% in 2019. It came back, it came down, you know, 4% in 2020. And so what's changing now is I feel like this sort of, you know, competitive truce between and among, it's not an actual truce, it's a, in a sense, it's a truce, but you know, this, this sort of CapEx spending, you know, pause, I think, is is done. And, you know, folks are realizing that, you know, um, this is an attractive market. Uh, there is a good ROI in investing in even in rural broadband. And you've got a bunch of new, you know, competitors on the horizon. You've got the wireless guys who are getting much more aggressive. <clears throat> um, you know, remember that the wireless space hasn't been growing. Right. It stopped growing for the first time, you know, in 2020, you know, wireless service revenue and equipment revenue combined was down two and a half percent in 2020 after you know two decades of growth. Right. So you've got guys like T-Mobile, Verizon Wireless. They're now you know looking at fixed wireless. Right. As a way to <clears throat> kind of augment their mobility businesses, find new additional you know, revenue streams and, and start to get back to growth. You've also got all this new C-band spectrum that's been made available. That's an enabler here. They've got to monetize that and, and get a return on invested capital. You've got millimeter wave spectrum out there in a really significant way that's low cost or free in many cases. And you've got the cable operators, you know, looking at edge out strategies, you know, more aggressively. So, uh, you know, Starlink is out there. I've got a bullet 
point for Starlink in, in the presentation, but you, you kind of tie all this up. It feels like the competitive environment has really been stoked again between and among you know the wireless guys, the traditional wireline telcos, the cable operators, Starlink. Um, it's an environment that that we really like. Uh, and then Trish, maybe go to the next slide here. I have a couple last points, and I'll just wrap up. <clears throat> um, you know, one of the things that we're seeing in the space that we're also quite excited about is we're seeing the equipment suppliers you know, coming to market, not just with you know equipment, but also coming to market with some software components. And um, Calix is probably out in front, and, and having done this, they're offering Calix Cloud and um, you know, basically, uh, these are new software components that um, that they're getting incremental revenue for, right? And uh, this is a SaaS, you know, software as a subscription or software as a service, you know, type model, um, and it's growing quite quite significantly. So they are, you know, standing up software in Amazon AWS, and they're allowing telecom operators to get access to that software and, and basically run analytics on their subscriber bases and, and, and really understand you know, the user experience. And when you do that sort of thing, you know, you can help operators, you know, uh, get their customers on the correct rate plan, uh, service plan. They can get on the correct, uh, you know, fix their Wi-Fi environments in, in home. They can get add-on services like parental controls or anti-malware or phishing, even home, home security monitoring. So they're basically enabling operators to get into new revenue streams, improve ARPU, uh, reduce cost, really improve the, the economics of their broadband offerings. And you know, AdTrans, you know, going in this direction, they've got a partnership with a company called Plume. Plume has been doing some of this in the cable space, but what's exciting about this from an investment perspective is that um, you know, the investment community is really valuing these companies on, on multiples of sales for SaaS revenue. And, you know, we think these new SaaS revenue streams are really picking up. And what's cool about it is they're also creating a lot of value for, you know, for the operator customers. And so um, it's something that I'm quite excited about right now. And then the last point, you know, I, you know, this is obviously a huge topic, but, um, you know, Huawei is, is certainly coming under pressure. Uh, the U.S. government is, is really going after them. They're on the entity list and they're not able to get access to U.S. componentry. And, one of the debates among the investment community is, you know, how long is Huawei's inventory of, you know, componentry going to last them? You know, at some point, they're no longer going to be able to ship broadband access equipment, optical gear, routing, whatever the case may be. So, you know, as we think about our research coverage list and our companies, you know, this is really a seminal event in the industry, you know, where that market share that Huawei captured all these years ago is now, you know, coming back up for grabs. So, um, it's also an environment that I think is pretty good for a lot of these vendors that we follow. So summing it all up, you know, we're a big fan of this rural broadband theme and uh, you know, I like what's going on and there's a big need in this space. Uh, you've got a lot of government dollars coming in here and it's a, uh, it's a picture that we like, you know, very, very much here. So I'll, I'll stop there and, and turn it back to you, Gary. Thanks, George. Well, I'm getting a ton of questions in and uh, so let's just get right into it. But uh, the first is, Given all this investment coming into the space, what are you seeing on the, the challenges of vendors to be able to have, be able to deliver equipment, materials, fiber, electronics, and us to meet this demand? Uh, you know, I get in an ordinary environment, I would say I'm not too worried about it, <clears throat> um, but this is not an, an ordinary environment at all. Um, you know, there are supply shortages all over the place uh, in terms of semiconductors, um, 
you know, I was talking to a vendor yesterday who was talking about how just from a, a shipping perspective, there's not enough shipping containers, you know, in Asia right now to take uh, materials, products, um, and put them on a boat and, and, and bring them, you know, for example, to the U.S. for, you know, you know into the country for, for deployment and networks. So um, the environment is really constrained. We're super aware of it. Um, I've got this sort of hope that, um, you know, a lot of the vendors and their dialogues with the street have really gone overboard in terms of, you know, being cautious with um, setting expectations for their businesses, you know, cautious in terms of, um, you know, talking about, you know, componentry and, and, and the shortages that are out there just in terms of the narrative. And so, you know, when, you know, time plays out, you know, we'll find that, you know, the shortages weren't as bad as maybe perceived, but um, it's definitely a real issue right now. Well, I know where all the containers are. I see the satellite photos of them sitting off the coast of California waiting to get through customs. But uh, <laughs> so another, another quick question is, uh, what's your view on the future role of M&A with uh, fixed wireless providers and WISP? Well, so um, I want to be a little careful with this question. You know, I'm a guy who follows the equipment suppliers, right? I don't follow the telecom operators, but um, you know, it, it seems like a very logical event, right? I mean, scale, you know, in any industry is really the key to driving, you know, attractive economics. Um, you know, I know there's quite a few, you know, PE firms and venture capitalists and other other forms of money out there kind of running around looking at rolling up fixed wireless operators. So um, I think that trend will really continue. Um, you know, and, and I think when you, when you look at an industry, you know, you want to look, you know, at the customers, you want to look at those component suppliers above them. You you want to do this sort of 360 analysis, and you know if others are around them are consolidating, either the customers or the suppliers, you know uh, then your your layer in the industry, your vendors have to consolidate also, right? So if the if you're seeing consolidation among the component suppliers or equipment suppliers, you know that uh, push towards consolidation oftentimes in industries tends to trickle trickle down. So um, obviously the end market for telecom operators is consumers, right? And so we're not worried about consumers consolidating into, you know, fewer homes or something, but um, uh, yeah, it's something we pay attention to. It makes sense. You'd see it. Uh, so another question is, how does fiber the home compare to other technologies from an investor's perspective? Yeah, this is sort of an interesting debate. Obviously fiber to the prem is typically thought of as being um, you know, a higher, you know, capital investment, right? And and certainly higher as you get to more, you know, rural areas and distances are are, are longer. You know, I go back, you know, to Verizon Fios. They were the really you know, big, you know, first really big fiber the prem rollout in the United States. This is going back, you know, 13 odd years now. Um, you know, investors really punished Verizon, right, for making those 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 bets on fiber to the prem and uh and because it really ballooned the CapEx budgets, right? And you know, investors are very cash flow focused, whether you're, you know, an equity investor or a fixed income investor, you know, cash flow is really the focus. And so when the cash flow is flying out the door as you're building out a big fiber the prem network, you know, it was very negative for Verizon. And, you know, guys like AT&T and Windstream and CenturyLink, the folks that were slower to build were, were rewarded, right, in that. But, you know, comes full circle, you know, all these years later, you know, Verizon with Fios is, you know, much better positioned in rural broadband than, 
you know, in my opinion, than guys like AT&T or CenturyLink or Windstream and, and so on. So, so I think it's coming full circle. You know, the investment community doesn't like higher CapEx budgets in general, but I think there's a realization that these operators need to reposition themselves and, and you know, be in, in a better spot strategically. Um, fixed wireless is obviously um, on, you know, top of mind, I think, for a lot of folks these days. Um, you know, the more I dig in, the more I look at the technology, it feels like, um, you know, the speeds that are available via fixed wireless are you know, becoming more and more competitive every day. And obviously, there's a debate there about, you know, reach and distance and number of subscribers served. But, you know, this market's going to have different tools in the toolkit. Fiber of the Prime is going to be one of them. Fixed wireless is going to be another. And for, you know, really, really rural areas, you know, satellites can be another. So um, I think all these technologies are winners. Yeah, I mean, for me, fixed wireless is what you put at the end of a fiber. And, you know, if you got to get within 500 feet of a home with the line of sight, you know, it's really, um, and all, we have a lot of WISP members and they all are scrambling to, once they have these homes connected with wireless, they're trying to get them connected with fiber as soon as possible because um, you get a lot happier customers when they have fiber all the way to home. You know, Leo satellites, that's fingernails on chalkboard for me, but fixed wireless is just getting fiber <laughs> closer. To fiber. Um, on uh, slide seven, this is a clarification question, but you were talking outside of the 94 billion, um, you know, with the Clyburn Klobuchar uh, bill, you said, are the other bills unlikely to succeed or already dead? And I think what you're saying is they, they were in the last Congress and that the Democrats were trying to push them through. So now that we have democratic control that we'll start seeing those pop up much more prevalently. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the reason why I pointed at those bills that died, you know, last year in Congress is that, you know, they demonstrate intention, right? And um, that demonstrated intention is what's really exciting to me. You know, you have this political climate that is really percolating for the benefit of, you know, more investment in, in the broadband space. All right. So uh, let's go to last question, I guess. I got a million here, but um, let's see which one's not too technical. Um, so this, you were mentioning about, um, you know, Frontier, Windstream, other companies that have had gone through bankruptcy and cleared the decks, their decks of debt. Um, do you think there'd be any hesitation from, you know, the FCC or NTIA or any of the federal money from being deployed to those companies that have taken cap money and then had gone bankrupt? It's a good question. I mean, obviously, looking back, I mean, you've seen a lot of CAF dollars and now even RDOF dollars, you know, flow to those operators. So, you know, they're big existing networks, you know, they're the incumbent operator in a lot of places where, you know, broadband is definitely insufficient. Um, yeah, I, I think it's likely that those guys would absolutely get funding. But um, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, you're talking to a comms equipment analyst, not a guy that's, you know, studying policy and regulatory stuff. So, I'm a little bit of a fish out of water, but my impression is those guys would get dollars. Well, we're out of time, but George, thank you so much. You know, it's always uh, a pleasure to speak with you and to get your insight on investment. So I really appreciate you sharing that with our audience. Uh, next week, we're gonna be talking to one of my favorite people, Dr. Douglas Sicker, who is the former FCC CTO and the former NTI CTO and is currently the Department Head of Engineering and Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon University, as well as the Executive Director of BTAG. And BTAG is the Broadband Internet Technology Advisory Group. And they just completed a really interesting report on pandemic network performance. And I read this report is amazing on just what happened during the pandemic and how the network 
what worked and what didn't and uh, some recommendations. So you're not going to want to miss it. So thank you again for joining us today. And I look forward to getting back to you guys next week.